This is Swampside Chats, a podcast about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we wrap up our reading of the Communist Manifesto and discuss Kautsky's 1901 essay, To What Extent Is the Communist Manifesto Obsolete? I'll give you a hint. Not very. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Patrick. I'm I'm with the Red Party. Cliff. Uh, is this there? is Cliff Connolly with CLT. Uh, Peter. <laughs> Peter Moody, also from the Red Party. Lexi. What's up? This is Lexi from Red Party. Got that house 20G. <laughs> and uh, Donald. Hey, comrades. It's Donald from uh, Communist League of Tampa. Okay, so this week we're going to talk about the second half of the Communist Manifesto and then talk a little bit about Kotsky's thoughts on it and a later piece he wrote. To what extent is the Communist Manifesto obsolete? Uh, so the third section of the Communist Manifesto begins by talking about different historical tendencies within socialism. Last time we talked about how there might be invariant elements in the program that's put forward at the end of the last section. So I thought, in addition to just kind of talking about each uh, historical tendency that's outlined here, we can look a little bit at, you know, what kind of maybe modern analogs there might or might not be for each uh, tendency. So it starts with a set, uh, reactionary socialism. And the first in this set is feudal socialism, which Marx and Engels describe as a bit of historical freakery in which a dying aristocratic order appeals to the proletariat against the rising bourgeoisie. And for example, they point to the French legitimists and to young England and I'm just going to read a passage here. Uh, quote, the aristocracy, in order to rally the people to them, wave the proletarian alms bag in front for a banner. But the people, so often as, as it has joined them, saw on their hindquarters the old feudal coats of arms and deserted them with loud and irreverent laughter. End quote. So any thoughts on uh, Marx and Engels' sketch here of uh, feudal socialism? Well, I think the first thing to point out would be that there is no longer... Aristocracy that has right. that that can appeal to you know its uh, its values and kind of rally people behind it, but at the same time you do see in modern reactionary thought a lot of um, mythologizing of the aristocracy and old school feudalism. Freaking Steve Bannon reads Evola, for example, and Julius Evola's whole philosophy is you know basically an ordered a rank ordered caste society based on strong traditions and hierarchies that are rooted in a kind of aristocracy. And you do have these kind of weird dark enlightenment people who want to create new aristocracy through eugenics and stuff. But these are mostly marginal ideas. You know, I don't think that they're really, I think modern fascism, if it, you know, becomes a, a real big thing is not really going to be fueled by a kind of appeals to feudalism. Yeah. I mean, towards the end of the section, there's, something on clerical socialism and Christian asceticism. And I mean, not that Christian socialism is really a problem these days. I don't know. Perhaps there's an analog to, I don't know, the socialist influences and the Islamist movement, like the, you know, Pan-Arabists and that kind of stuff. I mean, but I mean, they're also obsolete, but that's like the closest historical analog I can think of. Uh, thinking about this, I saw there, there's kind of a weird inversion, I guess, of feudal socialism in the way that the Lasallians approached political tactics and political strategy. 
in of trying to ally with the or at least semi-feudal Prussian state against wow. against the against the bourgeoisie. And like I wouldn't consider that feudal socialism per se, but there's it, it's interesting that it's that there's that 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 sense of the the old reactionary classes and the working class can be at least allies against the rising bourgeoisie. And that's again it, it, it's not a it's not a modern parallel, but it is something that it, it's something that still continued as a trend into the later parts of the 19th century, at least in Germany, um, probably not some other places as well. It's a class war sandwich. Oh, fun. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the Red-Brown Alliance, I guess, that oh boy. people are arguing is happening, where, you know, uh, the left needs to uh, ally with the far right against the liberal elites. And that LaSalle comparison was pretty uh, dead on, I'd say, because that really is basically what LaSalle was, this idea that proletariat and the old aristocracy can make an alliance with the old aristocracy against the, the rising bourgeoisie. And you see this idea in Sorelianism, actually, hmm. and um, some of the ideas of the French far right around him, like Action France, who uh, were basically trying to kind of create a, a proletarian aristocratic movement basically and they had um a disdain for democracy that was very much influenced by um kind of aristocratic idealism i think it's funny that what marx and engels describe as the downfall of this uh this feudal alliance with the proletariat is something that like fascists uh and reactionaries now are using for like recruitment because they talk about how the proletariat saw the old banners of aristocracy and laughed them out of the building, basically. And now we have these reactionaries like using these appeals to feudalism, uh, even though they're empty appeals, to sort of create a following. Yeah, it's like a very aesthetic appeal. Like it's just, it, it has like no real material basis. It's just they just they just like the aesthetics of it more than anything else. I'm convinced. And I think it's uh... hilarious that like the aesthetic was was what brought them down historically. And, uh, and now it's being used to, like, prop it well, up. Well, I think the crusade LARPing aspect of the alt-right is something to keep in mind. Like, the whole uh, Deuce Volt meme that was popular amongst those circles. Like, there is this, um... The Alain de Benoit, uh, one of the French far-right thinkers, who basically is one of the brains behind the, the new right, he likes um, to compare the current struggle against Islam to the crusades. And so... I guess um, you can see that there's almost like this mythology, and there's this mythologizing of the Crusades to kind of um, frame this populist um, anti-Islamic sentiment in the European far right. Right. And they're kind of trying to, they, they, the European far right really likes to like try to appeal to the workers and stuff, you know. They love the yeah. Reconquista too. I will say this though, we do have a uh, sort of Christian socialist as like a local activist figure and he's like one of like the worst most opportunistic people like in town so why <laughs> oh god yeah i know who you're talking about man yep. they fucking yeah. suck <laughs> well you know that's an interesting question because there is i don't know i'm sympathetic to an argument that religion isn't as like important a prop for ideology for the contemporary state so it's more of a of a battlefield more or less than it used to be uh, whereas something like nationalism, I think, is, you know, clearly just 
you know, the house always wins. Um, with something like religion, I mean, a lot of the people that I've organized with, you know, some of them are religiously motivated and it's either something like that or, or, you know, a, a belief in the inevitability of communism or, or it's just masochism that keeps people going, honestly. Section B, uh, petty bourgeois socialism. Uh, here, Marx and Engels talk about the emergence of the petty bourgeois class uh, and then the sense of like imminent, imminent demise that was kind of pervading their outlook at this time. Uh, Sismondi is the thinker that they point to for this tendency. And there's a quote towards the end of the section, just surmising it, basically. Uh, its last words are, corporate guilds for manufacture, patriarchal relations, and agriculture. Does anybody have any thoughts on uh, petty bourgeois socialism? Uh, it just sounds like fascism, basically, or like radical traditionalism, like basically like a corporatist state for industry and then like all the peasants get their land and maintain traditional values. But the, I don't know, you still try to kind of like balance the class conflict through like guilds, basically. Like, like corporatism is very much like a hearkening back to the guild structure, I think, in order to kind of uh, create class cooperation. Has anyone actually, has anyone here actually read Sismondi? Like, how does that, because I've never read I, his stuff, but I'm aware of his existence. Like, how does that relate to this exactly? So, um, so Marx uh, references Sismondi as one of the two um, thinkers in political economy, the other being Malthus, actually, um, who denies Say's law. Say's law is the idea that supply creates its own demand. It's the theoretical basis for equilibrium economics. It's a highly, highly ideological, bourgeois ideological notion of how the market works. It's still alive and well today. So the idea is that, you know, Marx is taking this um, critique of Say's law in a progressive direction, I guess, where, you know, Malthus and fucking Sismondi, and I don't know much about Sismondi, I do know Malthus is an arch-reactionary piece of shit. I, I think the idea is that they understand that capitalism is not stable. Yeah, I was just going to say Sismondi was kind of... um. I read, uh, if you read Accumulation of Capital by Rosa Luxemburg, a lot of it is um, her shitting on Sismondi. And um, so my understanding was that he kind of, he understood that there were crisis tendencies in capitalism, but he saw it as kind of, um, kind of in a Malthusian way, I guess. Basically didn't understand that, you know, the role of the class struggle, obviously, then in, in ending, in ending um, capitalism. But he could see the... Uh, the crisis tendencies, I guess, but had a horrible way of theorizing them. Yeah, he, it says here, uh, I'll just quote from it, uh, quote, this school of socialism dissected with great acuteness the contradictions in the conditions of modern production. It laid bare the hypocritical apologies of, co of economists. It proved incontrovertibly the disastrous effects of machinery and division of labor, the concentration of capital and land in a few hands, overproduction and crises. It pointed out the inevitable ruin of the petty bourgeois and peasant, the misery of the proletariat, anarchy in production, the crying inequalities in the distribution of wealth, the industrial war of extermination between nations, the dissolution of old moral bonds of the old family relations of the old nationalities. In its positive aims, however, this form of socialism aspires either to restoring the old means of production and of exchange, and within the old property relations in the old society, or of cramping the modern means of production and of exchange within the framework of the old property relations that have been and were bound to be exploited by those means. In either case, it's both reactionary and utopian. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> that sounds very fascist-like. And honestly, it reminds me of sort of um, 
the post-war settlement in the United States and the kind of, you know, white supremacist, um, not incomplete welfare state that was supposed to fund a small property utopia. Massive suburban housing projects, but not for blacks. Yeah, no, no, you know, you put them, you huddle them up somewhere else and then, yeah, you have, you make like almost all the white families into, you know, small property holders in a sense because they have, yeah. They're they're in debt, but you know they have probably have a union, so maybe they can pay off the debt. You know, like. But they own a house. Ultimately, that's the thing. Like, if you own your own house, you feel like you are you have something invested in the system, and you care about your property values. And so that kind of deproletarianizes people is when they own their house, basically. Engels talks about that in the uh, housing question. Yeah, Actually. I mean, it does. It, it is. It is a different property relationship. You you own something. <laughs> you don't just have the shirt on your back. And I mean, maybe it's not relevant to production, but you know, still. Yeah, but it's still a ca- it's still capital. It's still reserves and something that you that keeps you like invested in the system. The guy who literally planned out suburbia basically said, "No man who owns a home has time to be a communist." And so the creation of suburbia in the U.S. was literally an attempt to kind of extinguish class conflict in order to prevent the rise of communism. That you shit know, worked. It was, actually, it was actually consciously seen as that by its architects. That shit totally worked. And honestly, we should be studying that a lot more because that's the secret to American life and why we didn't have even a, a regular racist socialist movement like a lot of the British ex-colonies did. I think of the australian socialist movement you know that was like horrible to aboriginals but still you know they had a tangible socialist party that was important like beyond the 20s yeah it definitely seems like uh suburbia's architects were successful in their mission but i don't know maybe it's just because of my personal experience but it seems like we're entering an era where that may be falling apart at least a little bit and maybe creating an opening Absolutely. That was 2007. That's the meaning of 2007 is the the, the falling apart of this kind of class compromise, which was historically, I don't know if there was anything that matches the success of of this project for stymieing um, Marxist politics. Yeah, you definitely um, have been seeing declining rates of home, home ownership. And so more and more people are renting their properties and living in apartments. And I mean, I'm not trying to sound like an immiseration theorist, but that that is better for class struggle because, you know, you can form tenant unions. Workers have to struggle not only against their bosses, but also their landlords. And it just makes it easier to create class collectivity, I think, when you have um, tenants living in apartments concentrated rather than everyone having their own little suburban house. Yeah, like the, the social atomization of capitalism is a huge obstacle to organizing i mean and you can see that you know in marx and Engels' work one of the things that they extol about factory production is that it brings a lot of people together under one firm which makes it easier for them to organize but once you disperse everything the capacity for working class organization has to be diminished in some respect yeah in um in a completely different context uh dwight eisenhower said i'd rather be atomized than communized <laughs> c German or true socialism? This one gets a little abstract, and it seems like they're talking about kind of the philosophical milieu of early 20th century Germany, uh, which I'm not, 
I've read some stuff, but I'm not super familiar with. Anyway, um, it notes how the kind of radical thinking in France at the time was introduced to Germany at a point where the German bourgeoisie were just starting to struggle against the previous aristocratic order. Um, so in response to this, it, French political theory was largely interpreted by philosophers and sort of became abstracted in a way. Um, and the result of all like this anti-bourgeois polemic divorced from its context is that it was used to scare people off the development of uh, bourgeois, you know, production relations and to kind of prop up the current state of affairs in Germany. That's the impression I got, at least, from reading this section. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I also find this pretty puzzling. Um, I tend to think that this has something to do with some of the milieu that Marx is coming out of, the, like, left Hegelians. And, I mean, I don't know, there's a lot of overlap between the left and right Hegelians, honestly. I mean, if... I guess there could be like a modern, like sort of a analog between like the weird cargo cults that ended up getting created around like Marxism and like in like nations that weren't necessarily like developed, like in terms of like productive forces and that sort of thing. I guess you could like relate it to that. Like, it's there's 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 like a passage I want to read. I, I I don't know exactly what this says, but it just it's kind of resonant. It is well known how the monks wrote silly lives of Catholic saints over the manuscripts on which the classical works of ancient heathendom had been written. The German literati reversed this process with the profane French literature. They wrote their philosophical nonsense beneath the French original. For instance, beneath the French criticism of the economic functions of money, they wrote alienation of humanity. And beneath the French criticism of the bourgeois state, they wrote dethronement of the category of the general and so forth. The introduction of these philosophical phrases at the back of the French historical criticisms, they dubbed, quote, philosophy of action, true socialism, German science of socialism, philosophical foundation of socialism, and so on. So end quote there. Um, that really reminds me of a lot of, of, a lot of Marxism like a lot of this like yeah that's what was weird about it reading it was like this it, aren't a couple of these like their articles well i mean i think that they're picking up these phrases and trying to give them serious content mm. but yeah i mean what ended up happening i don't know when you read um the conspectus on on bakunin's state and anarchy where marx is kind of in polemic with bakunin and bakunin's kind of sort of predicting the future honestly Marx is like, no, you know, that's not what I'm saying. And Bakunin is, is saying, yeah, but what, but what this Marx guy is, this Marx guy is going to be very useful for this like Rousseauian populist kind of uh, socialism. He doesn't say it like that. Yeah, when I when I read stuff like this, Marx is criticizing the kind of people that would pick up his name soon. Yeah, that's what I saw it as, is basically critiquing uh, state socialism, as Kotsky defines it in his early article, which is basically just uh, the idea that the state itself is socialism and that a strong state is the equivalent to socialism. So basically, we just need to nationalize lots of stuff and have lots of welfare. And through the bourgeois state, we'll have some kind of socialistic society. Yeah, and also there's sort of like a underlining theme of like robbing of political meaning from like French, like French socialism, like that could be like 
like sort of connected to the way that Marxism has lost a lot of its punch and its translation into like some academic circles. They tend to focus heavily on like alienation and that sort of thing as concepts because they're less like class class struggle oriented in nature. Yeah, that, that was something that, that struck me when I read the text and when uh, Lexi read it back again, is that in many respects, it sounds, it reminds me a lot of like the, the modern hyper-academic left, which talks about alienation as this very of abstract category, for example, and uh, develops a lot of, I suppose, a lot of interesting theory, but because it's it's divorced from really any real movement whatsoever, um, even more divorced than the, you know, we can say, even more divorced than the activist left is from a real movement of the working class, for example, um, and it just seems very, it, it kind of reminds me of your average member of platypus, for example, and that it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very much a, a postgraduate left, which has gone through large degrees of formal education and intellectual rigor, I suppose, in that regard, but not a whole lot of engagement with material conditions and with yeah, I was thinking class. I was thinking of Zizek and his fan club because they're all about, oh, we need to talk about ideology more and kind of um, re-hegelize Marx and really like make a, you know, it's kind of philosophy, like the kind of what I call philosophy student Marxism, you know, we, and Zizek just reminds me of that because his actual politics are basically just you know, stupid statist uh, type stuff, you know, you know, he basically just supports um, bourgeois states and whatnot, and a lot of us are shitty policies towards um, immigrants and whatnot. But he still, at the same time, makes these radical like pronouncements about oh, ideology, blah blah blah. So I don't know. It's it definitely reminds me of the uh, the as you said the postgraduate left, I guess. <laughs> well, as a philosophy student, Marxist. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> the um, yeah, this stuff does become ideology for state takeovers of everything and the humanist side of marxist politics i think is super important i think the alienation stuff from 1844 um continues to be relevant here and in you know throughout marx's work but you know marshalling the human as a category in politics is too general um and yeah i marx is definitely harping on this sense of no you, you can't do politics that way you need class struggle yeah there's a sense in which humanism can become a way to um kind of basically try to avoid talking about class conflict and make kind of um concessions to populism and basically declassing your politics where at the same time you know we i'm not arguing against humanism as such i'm just no. saying you know as, as a um it's, it's, it can be deployed in ways that basically make class conflict less important of a thing, which is which is bad. Yeah, it's hard to marshal a category so general as humanity. And I mean, that might give us some problems to marshal a, a category like the proletariat. I think we do have to marshal the category of humanity as a whole, because Marx's basic argument is that the proletariat's emancipation is the emancipation of humanity. It's just that 
that of category course. can't be marshaled in a way that hides the inherent antagonism between bourgeois and proletariat. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to an extent, I also think I would, I guess, go further and say that if if we're having trouble doing class conscious politics, we might have to treat the category of proletariat in a similar way because there's so much uh, antagonism within it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wasn't really aiming it like directly at uh, Marxist humanism, like the sort of critique that I was bringing up. I wasn't really aiming it directly at Marxist humanism, though I could think of it as a part of the problem. Like really, you get into like anti-humanist tendencies when, as as you go along further into this sort of development of academic Marxism. Like once you get get into like structuralism and um Altisair and all that like it's it's still like devoid of any kind of political content but it's like anti-humanist in nature so uh I, i'm just trying to like take like n say that it's not all on marxist humanism you know, yeah completely I agree. oh yeah the althusserians are just as bad <laughs> like there are no good guys in that fight i don't know in my opinion also, uh, this might be like sort of like getting off track, but uh, an interesting thing to know about the relationship between like the academic left and the activist left is how often they feed off of each other in weird and uncomfortable ways. Like a lot of the rhetoric that um, modern that's a part of like modern social justice discourse directly correlates to like stuff that was brought up in like um like the left-wing sectors of academia. So you mean like bodies, using the word bodies? Yeah, like rhetoric like that. Like a lot of the rhetoric that's used uh, now. Yeah, like strategic essentialism, basically, is the idea that you can use this, you can essentialize yourself in strategic ways in order to um, affirm your identity. It's a spyback idea. You definitely see that as a, a big thing in identity politics. Yeah, and a really, really incredibly crude interpretation of standpoint epistemology is often used as like sort of a weird reverse ad hominem argument in a lot of debates online. I've I've noticed that and in activist circles. It's a total doubling down on ad hominem logic. And I mean, to be fair, Marx does offer a bit of a defense of it, but not to that extent, not to the Lukashian extent. I knew Wukash should be brought into this. <laughs> how can I? How can I leave him out? I mean, that's yeah. that's the. Uh, hey, you really want to be a you know class fighter? Well, the truth is determined by the class and its institutions. How about that? Maybe I should explain a little bit more what I mean by standpoint epistemology because a lot of people might not know what the term actually sort of means. Yeah, that's a good idea. For my understanding of standpoint epistemology is basically that it's like rooted in like the understanding of of like the oppressed individual experiences of the oppressed and that sort of thing that's probably not a good explanation but that's what i usually understand it to be well it's it's basically um the idea that your identity determines how correct your idea is when you're talking about something related to your identity which is just instantly disproven when you see how many people of color embrace reactionary police policies and how many women embrace, um, you know, anti-abortion stuff. 
So obviously, your identity does not determine how correct you, you're, um, you are in politics. It's, yeah. it's a lot more than that. You know, you have to actually see through these abstract structures of um, exploitation and domination, which requires, you know, some kind of analysis Education. of society. Exactly. It's, it's, it's basically saying that, like, people's spontaneous reaction to their environment is the truth. It, it's it's a little more than that. I think this. I honestly, I think this whole standpoint epistemology thing is Marxism's fault, because in order to get away from you know the humanist kind of you know group hug, people started reading a lot into Marx's theory of knowledge and created this idea that truth itself is determined by the class standpoint, and that the class standpoint was a way of rearticulating Marx's idea of class interests, and so the idea is that a, a applied, you know, more generally, let's say, to that a proletarian that supports gutting unions, they're, they're against their class interests. Um, okay, I can get with that, you know, a, a, a black person that supports the arming of police further, you know, that's against their interests to an extent. I can agree with that. Um, where, what, what, the problem is when this becomes a theory of knowledge, um, <laughs> where, you know, you're like the standpoint of the oppressed, becomes really the barometer of truth. It's a, it's a pragmatic kind of politics. It's very, it's a pragmatic um, epistemology. It's very relativistic. Thanks, Lou Catch. Yeah, thanks, okay. Dick. I don't know if we want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Yeah, let's, let's pull ourselves out now. So does anyone have any other thoughts on uh, German or true socialism? <laughs> it's not it true socialism. It just seems weird <laughs> yeah. and pretentious. Okay. Strangely, for uh, so th those three set those three groupings basically make up reactionary socialism. Uh, the next section is uh, conservative or bourgeois socialism, and it opens with a sentence that kind of sums up bourgeois rule pretty well overall. I think, and it says, "A part of the bourgeoisie is desirous of redressing social grievances in order to secure the continued existence of bourgeois society." And it goes on. To this section belong economists, philanthropists, humanitarians, improvers of the condition of the working class, organizers of charity, members of society for the prevention of cruelty to animals, temperance fanatics, hole and corner reformers of every imaginable kind. <laughs> this form of socialism has, moreover, been worked out into complete systems. We may cite Proudhon's Philosophie de la Misere as an example of this form. I think for probably the closest, I mean, one, th one thing I see that's probably the most popular kind of so pseudo-socialist scheme of this sort, or schemer of, of this sort today would be like Richard Wolff, right? Kind of like one of the more popular American Marxists, um, which has always kind of struck me as like a form of neo-prudentism because he's basically arguing that somehow having government-funded co-ops will rebuild workers' power, um, but the co-ops won't really be co-ops. They'll be worker self-directed enterprises and yeah. they'll trade with each other and it'll be a big, yeah. Well, to be honest, that sounds more like LaSalle than Proudhon because yeah. Proudhon thought that the, the co-op should be completely like bottom up and autonomous from the state and should uh. come from like workers like forming guilds and then, you know, putting all their money together to like form a co-op. Whereas LaSalle wanted to get positions in parliament so he could uh, basically get the state to fund co-ops and basically create socialism through that. So it's very Lasallian actually. But um, Proudhon definitely is 
I think there's definitely um, he reminds me of David Graeber actually. I think of David yeah. Graeber in a lot of ways in Graeberism. This whole idea of of not taking on the state and avoiding politics, but creating kind of creating like your own like horizontal anarchist world free of the state within this within society, and then just keep on gradually doing that until you have your own kind of autonomous zone or whatever. Yeah, his alternate kind of. Uh you know, three types of production or three types of exchange, I guess it is, uh, that uh, Graeber has that kind of, uh, I mean, I can't say that I'm an expert on it, but I'm suspicious of that because I think it would end up becoming apologia for, you know, small market relations or something like that, or small property relations at the very least. Oh yeah, um, it is definitely an apology of her small property relations. <laughs> There's yeah, no doubt about it. So, I mean, that's, that's where, you know, that's extremely protonistic. Um, yeah. Uh, also, the when he's talking about philo- philanthropists, humanitarians, you know, prevention prevention of cruelty to animals, blah blah blah, it really reminds me of Orwell's complaint about the type of people that are attracted to socialism. Of course, Orwell makes it worse. So he throws in feminists and sex maniacs in there, as if it's just all the same. But um, but yeah, I don't know. It's kind of funny. Like this is when people call themselves socialists out here in the Bay Area. A lot of them don't mean like, you know, scientific class struggle Marxists or something like they mean, I don't know. They for Bernie and they buy fair trade coffee. and Yeah, exactly. This like the category is pretty broad. Like you could even apply this to like Hillary supporters, that sort of thing. Like they don't call themselves socialists, but, you know, they're about as socialist as like animal rights at animal rights activists like PETA and that sort of thing. Yeah. It says later, uh, there's another paragraph towards the end. He goes, free trade for the benefit of the working class, protective duties for the benefit of the working class, prison reform for the benefit of the working class. This is the last word and the only serious meant word of bourgeois socialism. It is summed up in the phrase, the bourgeois is a bourgeois for the benefit of the working class. (laughs) Yeah, it basically is, uh, it reminds me of neoliberals because they think that capitalism by creating economic growth inherently is the best for the working class because it even even the lowest in society still get dragged up by the general improvements in capitalism so if you really want the working class to do well you should support free markets and capitalism because it will you know make everyone rich i i think it's more it's i i i can see what you're saying and that it's where we 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 support we, we support neoliberal reforms because eventually they'll they'll benefit everyone. But I think the 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 idea behind this sort of bourgeois socialism is more that it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you do it for 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 the benefit of the working class, as Marx says. And really, anything can be socialist just as long as you have the right mindset behind it. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's important to point out that it's you know he wouldn't actually be describing neoliberals. But, and I, he- I hear what you're saying. He would be describing the kind of reformist, uh, Bernstein kind of uh, class collaborationist. Look, we, we have common interests. You know, what's good for the bourgeois is good for the proletarian. Um, what we need is a harmonious socialism. So, I mean, honestly, I mean, Sanders in practice, Bernie Sanders in practice would, you know, like actually behaves this way, even though he had the, some, of, some rhetoric of class struggle in there. Um, in, in fact, that's kind of, I don't know, 
there's there's other categories that would describe Bernie Sanders as well. But I mean, I guess Bernie's even to the right of this. The left wing of neoliberalism still like makes appeals to the working class occasionally. Like you'll you'll get like the Democrats like throwing unions a bone every once in a while or that sort of thing. Or like they'll talk about how progressive Hillary Clinton's platform was or something like that. Even though it's like really obvious she wouldn't fulfill anything on her platform if she was actually elected or shit like that. There's another line in this that kind of reminded me of something. Um, it goes by, by changes in the material conditions of existence. This form of socialism, however, by no means understands abolition of the bourgeois relations of production, an abolition that can be affected only by a revolution. But administrative reforms based on the continued existence of these relations, reforms, therefore, that in no respect affect, uh, affect the relations between capital and labor, but at the best, lessen the cost and simplify the administrative work of bourgeois government. And this really made me think of like a lot of talk about GMI and how like the big thing about it is, oh, GMI. but you know, yeah, uh, guaranteed minimum income. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then like uh, UBI the whole, too. UBI, they call it UBI too. Yeah, um, I, know, I know it as UBI. Yeah, basic income. Uh, um, but that whole the whole big like pitch of it is like oh this will eliminate administration costs and bureaucracy because you know it's just a f- flat check you give out to everybody it, and like the feeding people it's almost secondary to so much of like the literature boosting it. Yeah, it, it yeah. like a lot. Uh, not to get off topic, but a lot of that just seems like a like a nice way of like just gutting the welfare state. Like it was literally developed for that purpose. It was by it's a heritage foundation. Kind of proposal um that does that's not all i think about it but yeah at least yeah. that has the virtue of altering the fundamental you know uh right relationship that people have to work if nothing else i, I think it's a good stepping stone at least to some form of class consciousness i was super into ubi basic income when i like first started journeying away from just basic neoliberalism so i think at the very least it's a good um stepping stone because it is outside the realm of um like normal political discussion at least here in the u.s yeah i i guess like crank crank like economic schemes are kind of useful in that sort of way as like a gateway drug to the rest of the left like maybe um like um if somehow like um the sort of uh modern money theory stuff ever became like popular i guess that might be useful or something like that i i don't know yeah like i think universal basic income would be good if it was introduced by a worker's state but introduced by a bourgeois state i think it would basically just be a way to to gut the welfare bureaucracy and then privatize a bunch of stuff so and it, it would probably be done in a way that would actually lower the social wage for the entire working class, is my guess. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's the most likely scenario. But then again, for any policy, if the if the bourgeois state is doing it unchallenged, uh, it's going to turn out like shit no matter what. Even even property law that was developed to protect protect the producer. Um, one of the only examples that Marx says of of that of his dialectical method. Is talking about how property law made to protect producers ends up being the, the very thing that ensures the alienation of their product because they've signed it away. And uh, it's the same law. So, I mean, I definitely agree with that. But uh, it's a general criticism that can be lobbied against any policy.
Yeah. And at, at the very least, you know, UBI people have models. Mar- Marxists, you know, to the extent that they're not UBI, uh, you know, they're arguing about whether you can quantify, uh, you know, anything in communism. You know, what I mean? it's just like not even, yeah. not even the le- yeah. at the level of policy. At least this is a policy proposal that is you can you can say, and it sounds radical, and it's not just you know bong rip stuff. Believe me, I love my bongs, but you know, come on, gotta be serious here. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, just to hammer at this, like I always do, is why you gotta have a minimum program. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be stuff like the hodgepodge of whatever, you know, a crank is throwing out there that sounds feasible that people will latch on to. Yeah, the fear of blueprints has like really like kind of made it almost impossible for communists to actually relate to common people in the United States and the rest of the Western world because like most most normal people couldn't like really be convinced of communism just through like talk a theory and that sort of thing like if we had like a minimum program that gave them a basic overview of what our policies would look like i think it would like help us relate to people better and i think it would be useful to maybe critique ubi to the people that are into it and just say like yeah i can understand how you would come to this conclusion that people should be taken care of and not have to worry about the ravages of capitalism, but do you really trust uh, the bourgeois state to carry this out effectively and sort of let the conversation go from there? Um, are there any other thoughts on this uh, on this section? Well, just to add on Cliff's point, it also it leads it basically gives you an opportunity to explain that the state is a class institution, right? That basically our project is political by nature. And that, but it also it means creating our own alternative politics, basically, and not becoming a think tank that gives policy to the bourgeoisie. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, so the last, let's see, the last section is three: critical utopian socialism and communism. Uh, the section starts off by exempting Babouf and others who try to advocate for the demands of the proletariat historically. Um, and then they talk about uh, revolutions and I guess what you could say are like historically premature conditions for communism. Um, a lot of people in these situations advocated for what Marx described, Marx and Engels describe as, quote, universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form, end quote. And the period they're talking about specifically produced uh, St. Simon, Foyer, Owen and others. Um, any thoughts on this section? Um, I think it's actually these people that Marx has the most sympathy for. I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it definitely is these Absolutely. people because they are essentially arguing for the abolition of class society, but they're talking about doing it through communes, like through dropping out of society and forming a new society itself that's classless. And basically they don't understand the necessity of political struggle for like destroying class society. They don't understand that the proletariat as a whole has to create the new society through this political struggle. And so they come up with crazy utopian crank schemes to, to end classes. But they don't understand how the classless society is basically being created by capitalism through its creation of the proletariat almost. And so they can't grasp the, um, the political importance of class struggle. But they still understand that you can't reform capitalism in a way that will make it beneficial to the workers. 
Yeah, I, I think it's also fairly interesting in that, it, at least to my knowledge, uh, utopian socialism, utopian communism, whatever you want to call it, out of these three, three broad categories, it's probably the one that had closest to a mass movement, at least internationally, uh, where, you know, if, if you look at um, the phalanxes of Fourier, for example, um, there were, uh, they, they were very popular in, in a number of countries, um, you know, the, the U.S. included for a period of time. There was, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. The U.S. There, there, had a huge utopian community. Yeah, there, like, there, there was one, um, about 20 miles from where I currently live. Uh, so it's, 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 it's interesting from that perspective. And I, and I think it speaks to your point that Marx is, Marx and Engels are probably the most, most sympathetic to this form of socialism because it, I probably at least partially because of its, it's to a greater or lesser degree, it's mass character um, in that it, it actually did it, it did develop some sort of workers' movement, um, even if it was a workers' movement of simply against society rather than a workers' movement to transform society. Yeah, um, like uh, the first half of Morris Hillquit's history of socialism in the USA is just a history of different utopian communities and tendencies in the United States. And so... The utopian communities are interesting because you really see people trying to kind of react to this loss of like moral order that's being created by the enrochment of capitalism on society. And they're reacting essentially the same way that hippies did, which is by dropping out and then going off and trying to create their own society like within capitalism that's as autonomous from it as possible. And so this, there, there seems to be a, a trend of this in American politics, basically, when you really look at how popular and how huge utopians were in the United States. And I'm not sure how much it is for other countries, but this was a really big thing in the United States. And it's really underestimated, I think, by historians how, how big it was. Well, yeah. it, keeps coming, it keeps coming back, too, because, you know, I remember during Occupy, there were all like, these Occupy farms. And even like here in Tampa, they were just like, yeah, dude, we just got to start a farm and we'll fucking grow our own food and we won't have to be part of the system. The Venus so it's, yeah, it's, yeah the, oh, the Venus Project. Yeah, that's a big thing here too. Although um, that's more, uh, the Venus Project's weird because all they do is like show you a bunch of stuff that could be, um, nobody's actually tried to implement it yet. I don't know if they just yeah, don't have yeah. enough money or. Kind of different, just Occupy. I don't know. Yeah, of... yeah. There's like a weird economic crisis element to it also. Yeah it's kind of like a really, really crude Marxism. Yeah. They call for a, uh, a resource based economy. It never really like clarify what that means. It's basically just com fully automated communism. That's what they want, but they, they've given it different labels and they talk about like an economic crisis created by like automation, automation. So it's, it's just a really incredibly crude and, watered down like version of marxism overall it is charming though like it it, it, it is you know like oh, i do yeah. have sympathy for it like if you ever seen like the concept art for their for like what communism would look like it's just really cute like sci-fi utopian kind yeah. of look yeah i think we kind of need that these days um yeah but, i think we need more of that but called but it needs to be called communism yeah 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 um the, the uh, major one of the major differences between marx's day and ours is that 
back then, you know, people could imagine a utopia and people were attempting to do it. Um, and I mean, some of the stories about the utopians are very funny when they're like drafting plans. They're like, look, I, I have the solution for social ills. I will call my representative and I'll, I'll tell them about it. I, I, I keep, you know, calling my representative or whatever <laughs> they're doing. I keep contacting my representative, yeah. but for some reason they're not implementing these schemes. Look, but I figured it out. You know, I figured it out. And, you know, like they had, you know, perfectly well thought out schemes and then, you know, they try to execute them and, yeah, you know, it's a mixed bag. But um, I, I don't know. Like, that, so that was going on then. And now all we have is Black Mirror. That's it. <laughs> like, yeah. well, and I also think that Marx was a lot more willing to imagine the future society than people give credit. Well, right. He was responding to all the utopias people are dreaming up in a situation where there's zero utopias to to not project communism and to not do blueprints is totally fucking reactionary. We need some kind of something to think of. It can't just, it, if you leave communism on a level of abstraction, any normie will just see a giant fucking mustache, okay? <laughs> Big, thick mustache stamping on a human face forever and that's it. Yeah, you need, people do need something to hold on to. I would point to Star Trek. Like, that's my kind of solution. I don't, the best. That's not enough, obviously. The but fully automated luxury well, gay space communism. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Star Trek, the next generation, the best well, cultural the, myth of, of, of this culture has no better myth than Star Trek. I know, right? Yeah. I basically try to describe communism to people as just like one big orgy where machines do a lot of work <laughs> for us. Yeah, like, it sounds very like uh, Reikian. Yeah, like yeah. space orgy domes on the moon. Yeah, and like lots of like, I don't know, just like crazy, I don't know, like space elevators. I know, I know, I know Jake is a big fan of space oh, yeah, elevators. Yeah, big, big fan of space elevator. I mean, that's the only way we're going to get rid of all the nuclear waste, I mean. Uh, before we get off the topic of uh, utopian socialism, I, I find it kind of interesting how like the, the new age hippie movement is incredibly similar in terms of like ideology is very similar f to the utopian movement not just with like the communes and that but on like the weird sort of spiritual slash philosophical level like you can draw easily draw like parallels between like trans and american transcendentalism and and like new age philosophy yeah and I, I think he's also talking about types of political communist as well in here like moses hess would be an example like People who were for me, Blanqui would be an example, because there were communists before Marx, but they had, like, Babouf. But as they say, it's a very primitive idea of what communism is, basically. It's, it's like barracks socialism. And, yeah. um, Crude communism. Uh, in the original publication of the Communist League, they actually had like, to make very clear that they were not advocating for the kind of barracks socialism that a lot of these other so-called communists were advocating for. And really, they didn't advocate for this kind of crude, anti-individualistic leveling that would just make humanity into a big gray blob, you know, as yeah. the stereotype against communism is. Like they were making it very clear that their aims were individual freedom and not just a homogenous. They didn't want some kind of homogenized society. Yeah, we're not going to be sharing toothbrushes under communism. I mean, I will. I mean, yeah, if you want. You know, There's going to be a shit ton of toothbrushes. So, does anyone have any other thoughts on this section before we uh, move forward? Um, there's this really funny book by a 
like a German expatriate, like a kind of liberal bourgeois that that came um, before the wave of 1848 um, German emigrants. And he was really into what he called the communistic societies of the United States, you know, the communes, the utopian socialist compounds. And so he wrote a book that basically has the, it's like an anthropological study kind of, it's basically has the structure of uh, Engels's uh, origin of the family. It's this bourgeois dude being like, okay, like look at it, wow, look at all these different communes, look at their ways of life, aren't they so interesting? And then, you know, he ha he does his wrap up and he's like, these communistic societies are great. You know, it channels everybody's attention into just reproducing their own lives in this really moral and really disciplinary way. And it, and it takes their mind off of the trades union movement, you know, that wants to change the government. You know, that's just bar barbarity. Yeah. At least this, this makes respectable proletarians. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. Like, cause he's like, these communistic societies are, are great. Yeah. Like it wasn't the hippies that were oppressed. It was the black Panthers, you know, uh, yeah. you know, if the bourgeoisie would love nothing more for every communist to just give up on political change and go try to start a commune and farm or whatever, like that's exactly, but the bourgeoisie would love that. Okay. So that ends our survey of, uh, 19th or, uh, yeah, 19th century, uh, socialist movements. Uh, so the last section is very short. Uh, it basically just kind of returns to a brief summary of the relationship between uh, communists and other opposition parties in Europe at the time and sort of surmising kind of the immediate situation. It just kind of ends. In short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front as a leading question each, the property question, and no matter what its degree of development at the time. Finally, they labor everywhere for the union and agreement of the democratic parties of all countries. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Then it ends at big letters, working men of all countries unite. And that's actually workers because it's proletarian, or I don't know how to say it, but... Uh... It was translated genderedly when it was not. Huh. Yeah, I'm reading off the version off Marxist.org. I don't know. Why yeah, they, uh... it's the word for proletarian. It's not. Uh, it's not like our our uh, fucking. I don't know German. There's a word that looks like arbiter or something. And uh, arbiter. Yeah. Yeah, arbiter. Yeah, it's. I'm, it's not that. It's it's proletarian. Oh god. Pro proletarian. Uh, um, Einheit, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, it's such a beautiful language. Using that high school German, oh yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, this section is just, it's so short, but it says a lot of very important things. One, we disdain to conceal our aims, and we don't lie about like what the implications of our aims are. We're brutally honest at all costs. I think that's something that modern communists need to take to heart. Especially yeah. with, a, like, it... I imagine if Marx saw like how communists tried to use front groups these days and how much that would piss him off because it's just so it's so against kind of what he stood for politically, which is you stand your political ground. You don't, you know, hide what you truly believe in in order to try to, you know, accompany the, the bourgeoisie's latest trends in politics. And it, it just also hammers the importance of internationalism, you know, proletarians of the world unite. That's just so important today, especially with uh, 
all the xenophobia towards um, refugees and the way that the proletariat has always been international class that has been a class of immigrants. Yeah, and this kind of wave towards trying to politically capitalize on anti-immigrant sentiment because of its, you know, understandable material base. Um, that's a concerning move when you look at this compass. It, and there was a little bit where they kind of you look at the relationship between communists and the different political tendencies that were existent in Europe at the time. And you can kind of see how closer relations with the bourgeoisie were more necessary in places where you know, development was uh, less extensive. We, we must make common cause with the Aryan reformers, comrades. Now, where are they? Agrarian reformers, not Aryan reformers. That's slightly different. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Agrarian. We're not Nazi Poles. <laughs> oh, not... God. Yeah, let's not have a red-brown alliance. <laughs> yeah, what, what was that? 1C, conservative socialism? Yeah. In the in the principles of communism, uh, I think Engels does a few more distinctions that might be fun to, to go over, but I know we're not prepared for that. <laughs> but, um, I, think, I think it really does hammer the importance, though, um, like we were saying, of just not engaging in this front group nonsense and being brutally honest. And when liberals or Bernie people or UBI people or whoever are putting their ideas forward, finding common ground and then agitating on the question of property, I think is definitely the best course of action. So in 1901, Kotsky um, wrote an article called Is the Communist Manifesto Obsolete? And um, he's basically saying it's been 60, approximately like 60 years since the Communist Manifesto. And he uh, is saying that there are basically certain invariant things in this manifesto that still count today, like the antagonism between worker and proletarian. But he says, but proletarians and also the bourgeoisie are no longer quite the same as they were six decades ago. Sharp and accurate as is the manifesto's portrayal of them, and though even today it forms the most brilliant and profound exposition of them possible within so narrow a limit, in some respects it does not tally. And I think his, um, his point here is essentially that the petty bourgeois is no longer a class that is willing to fight against the remnants of the old regime for democracy, and has instead kind of become the vanguard of, uh, of reaction. And he says that um, the proletariat is also stronger today. And he says, but even mightier does it al does also grow the quote rebellion of the constantly increasing working class, schooled, united, and organized through a mechanism of the capitalist process production, unquote, quoting capital. Even stronger sets in the resistance of the proletariat as one of the as one after the other of its strata learns to overcome the degrading aspects, effects of capitalism. And so he's saying that the proletariat is now stronger as a class, more organized and conscious as a class than it was during the manifesto. And then he goes further on to basically make the point that um, at the time of the manifesto's writing, the majority of the population was still agrarian and living in the countryside. The petty bourgeoisie was still dominant. And now that's been changing radically even um, though it's still, you still do have a petty bourgeoisie in the countryside at this point. But he is correct that there has been a breakthrough in terms of industrialization. He basically makes a point that um, the Communist Manifesto's argument that we need to unite with the um, bourgeoisie to destroy feudalism is no longer, it's no longer correct. And um, he says, the Communist Manifesto could yet declare, quote, in Germany, the Communist Party fights with the bourgeoisie whenever it acts in a revolutionary way against the absolute monarchy. 
and feudal squirearchy and the petty bourgeois. And then he says, today we can nowhere speak of a revolutionary bourgeoisie. So basically, um, Kotsky is saying that material conditions have changed to the point where there's no longer makes sense to kind of create this alliance with the bourgeoisie. And he also later in the article goes on about how various opportunists in the socialist movement, like the ministerialists, were um, basically using this argument about alliances with the bourgeoisie to justify all kinds of opportunism and stuff in the socialist movement and how material conditions had changed which made that aspect of the Communist Manifesto obsolete. But he still basically is arguing that the essential point of class conflict and political struggle is still essentially correct. I love the last parts on Russia. I mean, it's kind of fucking eerie. I mean, you could kind of see why these people thought that they had like insight into the essence of history. Because they a lot of the things that they were predicting were unfolding here or there. Like, obviously, we could comment on how it ages now, but I think it's just for now looking at his advice to the Russian socialists, which makes up the end, is well, I mean, it's pretty on point. It's pretty on point. Um, the Bolsheviks and the, you know, Russian social democrats more generally had to differentiate themselves from the progressive bourgeoisie, even while they were partnered with them to an extent. And as soon as as soon as the revolution came and they, they went right into opposition. Yeah. And Kosky also further makes a point that Marx's arguments for um, collaboration with the bourgeoisie need to be interpreted through the lenses of the 1850 address, where he explains that the workers party is still independent from the radical, you know, Democrats and all that. It's just that they um, struggle with them to the extent that the struggle against absolutism requires it but still put forward their own demands that are more radical and whatnot. So even then, you can't really argue for a popular front like you know, type thing using Marx's argument if you accept that the Communist Manifesto is not obsolete. But Kotsky is basically saying that there is no longer any revolutionary aspect of the bourgeoisie, that they no longer play a revolutionary role in society, and so there is no excuse for not having complete class independence from the bourgeoisie. And... He basically says even in Russia that the bourgeoisie is essentially, you know, not willing to play the revolutionary role that it should be willing to play. And so you can see why Trotsky would kind of um, come with, up with permanent revolution at that point. Yeah, his formulation of permanent revolution, of course. The uh, 1850 address, I think, is where permanent revolution is from. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this that, that's definitely like a really important lesson today because pretty much so much of what we're dealing with practically right now is trying to convince people that a clean break is needed with the bourgeoisie. I mean, first of all, you have to convince people to even conceive of things in those terms, but the real trick is convincing people, at least in the United States to divest from this whole, you know, democratic party orbit apparatus, you know, swamp milieu that's been created in order to build an actual like working class alternative. But, you know, there's so many people who want to, you know, go where, well, that's where the numbers are. That's where the people are. That's how we can, we have to go there to develop a mass base, but continuing to like invest any resources or energy and trying to prop up like the political, the current political institutions of the bourgeoisie is a complete waste of time and uh, effort. I don't think it's yeah. useful to have a mass base of reformists. 
Exactly, exactly. And Kotsky also makes of his point, which almost sounds like shitting on the popular front tactic before it was popular. He says, but wherever today a cooperation of bourgeoisie and proletariat may become necessary, it is, with the exception of Russia, not for revolutionary but for conservative purposes, for the preservation and security of the existing meager rudiments of democracy against the onslaught of reaction. And it says, in these struggles against reaction also, the proletariat has to stand its ground. Here too, the hardest work falls to its share. And so basically saying, even when the proletariat finds itself having to you know, struggle for meager rudiments of democracy, it's still going to be the most effective class to fight for that, more so than you know the bourgeoisie would be. So he basically says, you know, there's really no excuse for the popular front. God, all I can think about right now is the New York Times praising the black bloc. Yeah, or um, wasn't it the Guardian that was calling for a general strike? Yeah. I think I, I think I think the Washington Post too. Yeah. So I guess we want to take this into the into the future, huh? Not only so it's not obsolete in 1901. Okay, you know, sure. Now like a hundred. 16 years later now what i mean well, I, the method the methodology is what stands up and i think that's kind of what koski's saying here um they there's i mean we did we did notice certain things within the program that would still apply today uh to an extent but yeah i think the, the methodology that of marx and engels politicking i think we, we can still learn a lot from and apply to uh try to develop you know proletarian politics today yeah, I think what Kotsky is saying is that basically the general political schema that the proletariat needs to organize itself as a class and needs to wage a political struggle and needs to come to power and and in order to the, and needs to do so internationally. These are basic and variant things of Marxism that do not change as long as the proletariat and capital exist. Yeah, that's content. I'm weary of calling that methodology. Methodology sometimes refers to you know, abstracting a kind of logical form and replacing the political content with something else. Well, I was thinking what Jake meant by methodology is more like political methodology. Oh, yeah. yeah sorry, I'm you know I'm stuck in the in the I don't book. Know. I, if I was, I, I don't think, know if I was I interpreting you're right, you right That's Jake. More charitable uh, interpretation. Yeah, I mean, I I think <laughs> the only thing that has changed is that because there's no aristocracy, there's no revolutionary bourgeois, like was said. And other than that, like the material conditions are still basically the same. You still have the bourgeois on top of the proletariat and the proletariat still needs to organize itself to change that. So I, I, I don't see what could be obsolete outside of the, the lack of aristocracy. Okay, the, the, the glaring thing to me is, of course, since Kautsky is writing, the working class has, has been total, has been fucking, you know, miserated to, to a degree. Um, yeah, annihilated. Like, like at least their political power. But, even, but um, I don't know. There's debates over whether they're getting a declining share of of you know value or whatever. I don't want to get into that. But you know, not and so not only has that been destroyed, but capitalism doesn't associate people like that anymore. It's I just think about the Uber workforce. Mm-hmm. They don't fucking know each other. Period. That it's so alienated that they're incorporated as a small business. Like, yeah, I mean, I think what has changed, like as Kotsky says, is what's changed is not bourgeois versus proletariat, but just the nature of the bourgeoisie and the nature of the proletariat have changed. And that's what we need to yeah. study. Rather than trying to 
you know, act like the class relation has somehow changed of a general Marxist, you know, goal of organizing politically around class is obsolete. We need to look at how classes have changed and how that concretely changes our political goals. Yeah, but if, if classes change to the point where there's a bunch of small property holders that think of themselves as small property holders that have an objective interest in in proletarian politics because they own so little property. I mean, if class has changed that much, then then the fact that the petty bourgeoisie is like the the base of reaction is a huge problem. Well, I, I think like communism as an ideology could be like helpful for this situation because the relations between the capitalist class and the proletariat aren't as direct as they used to be. Like they're more individualized and people have like multiple bosses now in terms of like working different jobs part time or just doing Uber on the side or something like or stuff like that. So like viewing it from a systematic point of view as like not just your individual boss as your en enemy, but the whole entire capitalist class as an enemy is kind of helpful for the situation, even though it's harder to like, it's harder to explain to people. Well, the petty bourgeoisie has kind of, I mean, it's, oh, it kind of pr proved, it was, it proved itself to be a reactionary class in a Trump election because yeah, it was who brought Trump to power was the managerial petty bourgeoisie and whatnot. It was not the working white working class or working class or whatever. You know, it was the managerial middle tier petty bourgeoisie who brought Trump to power. And I think that how you win the support of these people, it has to be done in a way that does not give any concessions that are class desires. And I think that's one thing that Kotsky is saying that basically the proletarians independent class interest can't be you know, subsumed to the desires of the petty bourgeoisie. And so the petty bourgeoisie have to be won to our side on the basis of, you know, the proletariat supremacy. Yeah, the, the, the problem here is, huh, I, yeah, I guess we, we still have to conceive of communism in terms of the class interests of the proletariat, but it's, it's difficult to build the kind of coalition that we're going to need to build based on that precisely for the reason that you just mentioned we can't really give a lot of concessions to petty bourgeois class interests but if you're organizing around proletarian like identity or something like that or you know even working class identity it's you know people will become very conscious of their different class interests the the the, the critics of class consciousness today uh the only helpful alternative that i've really heard them talk about is um capital consciousness more or less explaining to people how this the system and i mean you know this is it's pretty ghostly right like the capitalist system explain how that is is what's driving you know people's common immiseration so i mean that's something that you can apply to a small shop holder um and even though that that's not um that that shouldn't be the people we're building politics for it kind of allows you to obscure the difference in class interest that kind of brings us back to the problem of humanism, I guess, is that totally. when, you try to, when you try to basically obscure the problem of class interest in order to kind of win the support of the petty bourgeoisie. But I think um, basically we should, we all have to basically win the support of the petty bourgeoisie by 
proving to them that the working class, that you know, the proletariat's emancipation is the general emancipation of humanity, and that you know we are the most progressive fighters for you know democratic fights and you know for the economic um, betterment of society, and I think that the petty bourgeois will split and some will go to the reactionary camp and some will come to art camp. And I think it's inevitable that the petty bourgeois will be reactionary in a large degree. I mean, do we necessarily have to actually win over the petty bourgeoisie? Because I'm going to throw out a little prediction about them dying, which, you know, has been proven wrong multiple times in the past when we've, we as Marxists tried to make, such a prediction but no, a, there's a genuine trend to, towards that I, I agree with you yeah there's an overall trend towards it and it's a parent it's definitely a parent parent right now especially with um uh trends among like uh um home ownership among millennials and that sort of thing like it's a definite trend that's going on right now so that kind of property ownership is being taken away so in like maybe a decade or so if like the economic conditions keep on if that trend keeps on going maybe we won't even need to win over the petty bourgeoisie i think that's fair and i also think the whole idea of like agitating people about the system of capitalism maybe loses sight of like the i think the best way to organize is to point out like this particular person is fucking you over like it's not this vague idea of the system it's your boss well, I think the systematic view is ultimately still like useful because like it's harder to figure out who's who's fucking you over because basically you're getting like gangbang. Okay, cut that out. <laughs> cut that. Fair. Cut that out. Uh, yeah, you're basically getting fucked over by multiple people at once. So um, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to figure all that out. So you have to have like a broader system systematic understanding of capitalism well, as a whole it's like this problem where okay like capitalism develops develops a means of production develops society but it does so to such an advanced degree that the whole system becomes increasingly abstract right like so much of i think hatred of liberals comes from the fact that liberals kind of represent like the managerial class and that's we've talked about this before that's who most workers will come in contact with and so to them that represents kind of the beneficiaries of the system whereas the real beneficiaries of the system like the real capitalists you know they're off in completely different communities maybe in a completely different country somewhere else and they'll never see them the closest thing they might see is maybe like tv celebrities like you know so in some ways like on an abstract level it's actually very easy to convince people that the system is fucked right because it's very, but the, the problem is like trying to translate that to get people to struggle like in a concrete way in like their immediate lives and like connecting yeah. like their sort of immediate lived like oppressions to the broader abstract system of capital accumulation. Yeah, like I, I, have, a tr I have trouble imagining organizing Uber drivers and being like, you know, you got to hate the CEO because they never deal with the CEO. I, I mean, maybe it would work. But really, they're just dealing with this automated self-management scheme. Well, and I think my answer to this problem is that you don't organize around class identity, but you organize around program and political aims. And the idea is that you organize around the program that is 
the interest of the working class, you know. Yeah, I agree that we with can, you. That, that these interests are rationally deduced from like structural class visions in society and so that the working class does have a program that reflects its interest in, you know, as opposed to different classes and that we need to organize around this rather than kind of like an idea of class identity and you unite people around common political and economic struggles, basically. Yeah, I think the cash value, to use a funny expression, of uh, capital consciousness ends up in, it's funny because I'm, I'm getting capital consciousness from like endnotes and, you know, the value form kind of thing, um, the critique of worldview Marxism. But, you know, it's actually kind of a ends with a sort of conservative humanist view. It's not really conservative, but to, to, to an ultra left point of view, it seems like a very conservative point of view to go back to politics, to go back to trying to, you know, democratically attract people to a communist program. You know, like I think that's where if there has been this breakdown in class identity, class is only experiences a limit that doesn't have radical consequences at all. I mean, I don't think Endnotes would agree with our, you know, what, what, what our solution of a problem, I think. No, no, no. But the, the essential problematic is, is where I'm, yeah, where I have a lot of common agreement with Endnotes. Like, yeah. And, um, but I just think that they're kind of hoping that it has more radical conclusions than it does. That's why they yeah. redefine communism to, to fit yeah. the, the miserable hopeless material conditions and movementlessness of now you know like they don't want to turn communism into an abstract ideal well if you don't it's just gone all right that's it for this week if you like this show and you use itunes uh leave us a review on itunes you can also watch episodes on youtube now if you like your youtube videos to not have any video in them if you want to send us a message, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. Next week, it's another News Roundup episode. We'll have all of the mildly amusing happenings of the day with the kind of hot takes and in-depth analysis that only Marxist internet nerds can provide. And the week after that, we will start to read through State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. So, until next time... Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your heads in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>